it's only 15 days to stop the spread, they said. 360-some-odd days ago. Find a hobby to kill the time, they said. Start a podcast, they said. Wait, what? Are, did you seriously hit the... You had one job, man. One job. All right, well, go ahead and kick in the theme music now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of Coffee and a True Crime Dumpster Fire. We're going to start off with a warning. The warning being, this is a true crime podcast. For those in the back, I'll say it again. This is a true crime podcast. It's a show for grown-ups. This, this show talks about some really disgusting and generally horrific shit. Oh, see, right there, for adults, for grown-ups. It pretty, gets pretty vile. So if you voted for Sleepy Joe Biden, this show probably isn't for— Just kidding, just kidding. Let's not uh, get all political and get our hands in a twist. Get all in a twist. But seriously, if you don't have a truly warped sense of humor— and are easily offended by some foul language on occasion, this is probably not your cup of coffee. You see what I did there? That's right. Yeah, clever? So if you're easily triggered by unnatural death, dismemberment, other things like that, just generally gross stuff, this show might not be for you. So... With all of that being said, let's get things kicking, huh? Let's get all of this horror show started. The ver For the very first episode, I'm going to tell you the story of the Father's Day Bank Massacre. So, a little bit of background. There are anywhere between three and 5,000 bank robberies a year in the United States. That's an average of 20 per day, if you account for all the holidays and weekends, etc. The vast majority of those are actually solved and the money's recovered. Um, the average, I did some research in, uh, on this whole thing, obviously. That's part of having a you know true crime podcast, doing a little research, huh? Anyway, so if you, I, the best statistics I found were back from 2006. The average take, if you're considering a bank robbery, you might want to reconsider this because, yikes. The average take was about $4,000. So you figure um, you figure, $4,000 times 20 robberies a day, that's about $80,000 a day. And usually all but about $3,400, give or take, is what's recovered. Um and of course, when people think bank robbery, they think, you know, the big Hollywood style shootouts and, you know, the old West guy comes in with the bandana over his face. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, they do that, too. But most people do think of, you know, they think of the, the really high profile stuff, you know, like North Hollywood or Miami in 1983, although technically that was an armored car. And they think, you know, again... Everybody thinks of the whole old school, you know, hands the teller a note casually and, you know, broad daylight, middle of the week, you know, hands the teller a note, says, I got a gun and give me your money kind of a thing. Um, so that's what everybody thinks, you know, when you're talking about bank robberies and stuff. They don't think of Father's Day being a, a day that you would rob a bank. I mean, well, Father's Day lands on a Sunday. For those of you that aren't fathers or didn't have... Wait, never mind. <laughs> um, that was... A, I, I almost made a really ignorant statement there. I apologize. But... It, so nobody really thinks, though, of Father's Day as being a day that somebody's going to get a bank... There's going to be a bank robbery. It, I mean, Father's Day lands on a Sunday every year. It's Sunday, Father's Day. Just like Mother's Day lands on a Sunday, I think. Um, I'm just kidding. I know Father's Day or Mother's Day lands on a Sunday. I know. Give me, just stop. But anyway, so no. But on June 16th in 1991, 
which was Father's Day, 1991, in Denver, Colorado, there was a pretty horrific bank robbery. Um, because actually, some people may not know this. Uh, it's probably common knowledge now, but back then it really, I don't think, was common knowledge that that uh, they count money and, and do all kinds of auditing and things on Sunday. It just It's more efficient because there's no people, blah, blah, blah. At least at the big main branches. Now the little, those little mini standalone buildings, whatever, those branch banks and things like that. Those, I mean, you get it. They're not open. There's nobody there on Sunday. That's what most people see is those little branch buildings. So, but this is the the, the United Bank in in downtown Denver, Colorado. If you're from there, or you've ever been there, or you have ever seen any famous photos of the of the Denver skyline, you can pick out the United Bank building. I think it's called. It's actually called the Wells Fargo Bank building now. But in 1991, it was called the United Bank building. And it it actually looks like a big, giant, old-school cash register. You can't miss that building. Um, anyway, so uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, on June 16th, 1991, at 4 a.m., an alarm went off in the basement of that United Bank tower. Uh, the guards just simply really just silenced the alarm, and it, it seems from all the reports and things that they just kind of ignored it. it. There was nothing ever really said about it other than they silenced the alarm. Nobody, the police didn't respond or any of that. They just silenced the alarm. So then at 9.15, 9.14, we're going to go with exact, well, anywhere we can, we're going to go with exact times. Some of these times are, are guesses or um, not guesses, but they're just sort of estimates of when the time was within a minute or so. But so at 9.14, a guy identifying himself as Robert Bardwell, who was a VP of a, a, a bank vice president, like head big, big time head honcho type dude. He showed up at a side at a side of a freight elevator on the side of the building and he picked up the security phone to call the guard room. Now remember, this is 1991, so cell phones aren't really that common, things like that. Um, so he picked up the phone, this guy that, that cl is claiming to be um, is claiming to be Robert Bardwell, this VP of the bank. And um, so security guard, he called down to the guard room and uh, security officer William, or um, sorry, uh, William McCollum he picked up the call, and so he gets in the elevator and rides up. And he and when he gets to the top there, and he open the doors open up, he's actually met by an armed assailant, who forced him back into the elevator and rode him all the way down to a sub basement of the building. Um. Obviously, a sub basement that's self explanatory. It's like a basement below a basement. Um. That's a common thing in in a lot of places up. In, in that area to have sub-basements. <clears throat> um, so um, he took him all the way down to the sub-basement, uh, shot and killed him, took his key card, and stuffed him in a closet. Then he heads up one level to the actual basement, and he goes right for the guard station, and... Somewhere along the line, at about 9.20, he opened a store, a stairwell door. And this is all from, from alarm logs and things, so we have a pretty good idea of, uh, and key card logs and all that sort of thing. So we have a pretty good idea that, that, that these times are actually accurate. So he heads up to the guard station, and um, at 9.20, he set off an alarm opening a, store, a stairwell, by when he opened a stairwell door. I'm assuming... That maybe he came up, um, you know. It doesn't really. There's not really a lot of information on this, but I'm guessing that he went up a stairwell and from the sub basement where he waxed that first guard and went up the stairs and opened that door and he got to the vault and just there's a there's like a sort of a foyer, a guard room um, where the guards are stationed right between, you know, right there in front of the vault kind of, and um, when he got in there, he shot and killed 
Philip Mankoff and Scott McCarthy. Um, he forced them into a storage room. They call it a battery room. So I'm assuming what that is is like a specifically the way that I envision that is like a a, a, a sort of a room, like a, a small closet full of um, stacks of different battery chargers for like radios and various equipment and things like that. So he forced them into this, this battery storage room and killed them. So then Todd Williams was... It's not clear. He was on his way back to the guard room. And, and this is either... They don't really know if he was responding, like, you know, coming in there to investigate the gunshots. Now, keep in mind, for whatever reason, these guards are all unarmed. Um, the, this was a recent change that had been made some months prior to the Father's Day bank robbery. Um, they had been armed for several years. For a long time, all their security had been armed, and then for whatever reason, I don't know if it was, you know, these days it, it, you could say it was probably political, you know, or optics or whatever. I don't really know what the reason was, but I know that they had at that time changed their policy so their security wasn't armed. Um, so Todd Williams is... is it's it's not clear again if he was, um, <clears throat> if he was headed there, you know, because of the gunshots, or if it was right after the gunshots, or even during the gunshots. Maybe um, he was shot dead several feet from that um, battery storage room there, and uh, so all total now, this is all that that covers all of the gunfire. That, that they know about was those um, security guards that were killed. Uh, with a total of 18 shots were fired during that whole little escapade. <clears throat> um, they were all, it was determined they were all fired from a 38, cali 38 caliber Colt trooper. It's a revolver, only one shot missed, <clears throat> only one shot missed its mark. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. Sorry. Didn't mean to cough right in your ear there. So, as I was saying, though, um, had to take a little break there. You guys didn't notice, but after these messages, we'll be right back. Anyway, so now we're back. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, <clears throat> 18 shots. Only one missed its mark. 38 Colt Trooper. Um, and it, once in the guard room... The the uh, intruder, the the rob the bank robber. He went to this guy went to great lengths to uh, in order to conceal his identity or her identity for that matter. We don't even know. Uh, could have been her, I guess. Um, so they took. I mean, they they went to great lengths to eliminate all their evidence. You're talking about. Uh, they took, according to the police reports and things, they took 10 videotapes, a set of bank keys, a two-ray radio, and they ripped several pages out of the uh, logbook. They didn't take the whole logbook. That's, that's kind of strange to me. Why wouldn't you just take the whole logbook? I don't, I don't get that. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why not take it and then go shred it somewhere, burn it, do whatever with it, but take it out of there. Take it away. I don't know why you would just tear out specific pages. Which is weird. I mean, they never figured out what was on those pages, I guess. At least it was never never really discovered. I never really disclosed or discussed anywhere that I could find that uh what the what was <clears throat> what was in those pages, but I'd sure be interested to know. I really would. So <clears throat> um so now we've gone he's actually at nine forty eight, so Again, this is, um, you know, we're, we're talking about, what, 20 minutes? No, I'm sorry. You know, this, this took a half an hour from, uh, it took about a half an hour from when the guy walked up the steps 
or hit that freight elevator. Roughly a half hour. Um, so at 9.48, he actually enters the vault. Again, I think this is based on key card swipes. Because, again, they don't have any videotape. They don't have this guy on video. Remember, he took the videotapes. Um, you know, so you don't know. So inside of that vault, there were six employees. So this is interesting. He killed those guards, but yet he lets these bank vault employees live. I don't know what that's about. That's, I mean, that's – I'm not saying that he should kill them all. I'm not saying he should kill anybody, but, uh, you know, why would you why, – why leave those six – anyway, so they're in there, of course, processing the week's cash deliveries. And um, he demanded that he, – he stormed in there and demanded that the employees cover their eyes and lay on the floor. All except the senior vault man, manager, David Barranco, be uh, – not – not like Bronco, like Bucking Bronco, but anyway, Barranco. Um, he was ordered to fill a satchel with cash from all the workstations. Uh, the so <clears throat> a satchel. That's a weird. <laughs> that's what they called it. So that's what, I mean. You know, it's a backpack or not a backpack. It's like a a, a satchel, I guess. Um. When I think of satchel, I think of like a big giant man purse, or like yeah, like a like a big giant man purse that would it, it back in back in the day, you'd carry a laptop maybe in a satchel kind of a thing, with a little flip with a little flap over the top, you know. Anyway, so um, he he's got that he he makes the vault manager fill the the thing up, and then he forces. All of those six, he forces those six vault people into what's called a man trap or a sally port. Um, it's, you know, a small, like, hallway, for those of you that don't know, but you're listening to a true crime podcast, so forgive me if I insult your intelligence. But for those that may not know, a sally port is like a little, almost like a hallway with, you know, that's enclosed on two, totally enclosed on two sides and got a door on either end. And is designed so that both doors can't be opened at the same time, kind of like an airlock. Um, so he, the the robber, forced them into the man trap and secured the man trap with them in it. And then, at 9:56 a.m., Elvis has left the building. Well, the vault, at least. Um, he collected the, the the robber actually collected all of his spent brass. The only physical evidence that they had, the only evidence that was left behind at all, really, um, was the actual projectiles. So this guy took the time, you know. So obviously, the the this guy understands how these things work. It's clear that. He has a pretty good understanding of how this stuff works. He probably understood that the that these alarms are, you know, that that a lot of these alarms inside that building and things are, um, are local. They don't they don't like, you know, unless somebody hits the silent alarm button, you know, the panic, the oh shit, we're getting robbed button. Uh, which don't well. They did, nobody did that, obviously. So, um, they, you know, they knew again. They had really good knowledge of how the internal operations work. So they they, so that kind of tells me. Spoiler alert: It's probably a former employee. Shh! Don't tell anybody. Um. Anyway, so the um, those six employees that were left alive managed to use a spoon, like a broken spoon, to pry themselves out of the um, to pry themselves out of the man trap. There uh, might want to update the security there. Might want to update the security there, Chuck. <clears throat> um, I don't know who Chuck is. It just it was a name that fit. Uh, anyway, so um, these employees 
they give the same basic description. Uh, you know, he appeared to be in his late fifties, maybe early sixties. Gray sport coat, multicolored tie, Ugh. a T-shirt. Uh, what? The guy was wearing a tie and a T-shirt. Please tell. I hope that I hope that they didn't that this wasn't like you know. I would hate to see that there was, like, a camera. You know, I mean, what? A t-shirt, man, with a tie. Anyway, so, uh, a t-shirt with a tie, gray slacks or blue slacks, maybe. A brown fedora. Now we're trying to get some style going, huh? Some mirrored sunglasses. And then he had a bandage on his left cheek. I'm not sure what that's about, either. Uh, I don't know. Um... So anyway, so what did this guy get away with? What was the ultimate score? So first of all, it's worth noting, inside that vault at that moment when he went in there, there was roughly $2 million. Now this is 1991, so that's a lot of money then. Still a lot of money now. I mean, $2 million, if you gave me $2 million, I'd be, whoo, boy, $2 million? Anyway. What I couldn't do with $2 million. But he only took, this guy only took $200,000. That was it. 10% roughly. Uh, why? Well, that's a good question. So, of course, this is federally insured money. So, the alphabet boys jump on board. And so... <clears throat> 40 feds and a couple dozen of Denver PD's finest set out to find out who murdered these people and made off with their $200,000. By the way, spoiler alert, the real Bardwell, the real Robert Bardwell, um, yeah, he was nowhere near the bank. He was on vacation with his family. <laughs> Shocker. Um, so... They did, They did. though, they figured that from go, they, they kind of, you know, the FBI might call it a clue, but they kind of figured that this was um, an inside job based on the, the knowledge of what, of what things to take with them to prevent evidence, you know, the videotapes, all those things. They had to kind of know. I mean, obviously, you're going to know that there's video recordings and whatever, but... Are you really going to know where to go to find them? Are you going to really take the time? Those kinds of things. Um, they also, early on, really kind of suspected that maybe not only was this an inside job, but this was a cop doing an inside job because the at that time, um, especially even on the Denver PD, they hadn't fully made the transition from the old wheel guns, the cult troopers, things like that. They hadn't made the transition from those cult wheel guns over to um, automatics. Uh, in fact, it was sort of a, you know, even the incoming academy graduates, well, in 1991, I think they were finally, the, the incoming uh, police academy graduates were, going to automatics, but, and initially, you know, I mean, they didn't really start the transition, I don't think, until uh, 1987, is what I, is what I've been told. Um, <clears throat> so, the other thing that, but the, but anyway, so the big thing that made them think of these, that it was law enforcement, is you've got 18 shots that were fired, all of them pretty well. I know the jokes about, you know, all the jokes and stuff. You see all these police shootings and whatever, and they can't really fire very well anymore. But I tend to disagree. Anyway, they're, they're, they're a better shot than your average bear. They're not crack shots. They're not, you know, I mean, they're, they're proficient. You know, but a as evidenced by 18 rounds fired and only one missed its mark. Um, but... 18 rounds was important because, again, these Denver cops are still carrying, a lot of Denver cops are, are 
cops in that area in general are still carrying wheel guns. Wheel guns are still pretty pretty popular and pretty well received. And so the standard sort of loadout, if you will, back in the day for a, a, a street cop that carried revolvers, uh, specifically the Colt Trooper model, 38, which um, is what Denver PD typically carried, a lot of them. Um, those specific, that loadout was 18 rounds. Huh. Where have I heard that number? Oh, that's right. That's how many rounds he fired. Um, so they started to question, you know, they started, again, inside jobs. So they, they start digging into the, all of the former and current employees and, and start digging through personnel records and key logs and all this stuff. And lo and behold, they come across one James King, a retired Denver police officer, retired in 1987. Huh. He he just left a part-time bank guard job about 10 months before the robbery. Huh. The dude was in debt up to his eyeballs. Um, he actually retired in 1986, 1987, sorry. Um, the dude was in debt like $25,000 in credit card debt. Um, you know, just a ton of, you know, I mean, the guy even, the guy even, uh, had to file for bankruptcy in like 1987, uh, and was still, even after the bankruptcy and everything in 1991, he was still up to his eyeballs in debt. Um, so they come across, I said, they, this guy looks really good for this robbery, right? Looks good. Looks good to you. Looks good to me. I think, he, I think he looks good. So, and then they came up with a couple of other um, noteworthy suspects, by the way. Um, one was Dewey Calvin Bank. Dewey Calvin Baker. This guy, I don't, I don't like that. I mean, I don't like him as a, you know, looking at it and looking at what they had and all those things. Going back myself and looking. This guy was already, he was a, a twice, or a, a formerly, con- a, not formerly, he was a convicted bank robber. And he confessed to reporters that he was the, air quotes, mastermind of this uh, of this robbery, and, and then he later rec- recanted it. They really, there re- really wasn't anything to put him. You know, he didn't live near there. He didn't nothing that was of any significance that really tied him to that robbery, other than the fact that he wanted his fifteen minutes of fame. Jumped up and down, told some reporters, "I robbed the bank. I robbed the bank," and there you have it. Voila, you are a prime suspect on my list. <clears throat> and then you got, um, uh, then you've got uh, Paul Yoakum. Now this guy, he, I, I personally kind of think that this is one that he fits, not all the way around, but he fits pretty good. He's not a, I don't think, I don't think he was a former employee. But he was actually, um, acqu- he had been tried and acquitted for trying to steal $30,000 from a United Bank ATM over the Memorial Day weekend in 1990. He lived less than a mile from that tower. Um, so, um, he's worth checking out, right? Sounds like he's uh Good, solid suspect. So he's worth checking out. So the Alphabet Boys, they send um, agent Special Agent William McMath and Special Agent Charles Evans to go knock on his door say, Hi, we're from the government. We're here to help. We'd like to have a chat with you. What you been up to lately there, Paul? Um, so they find, when they go to talk to him, they go into his apartment, and they find a closet door 
that's secured closed by handcuffs. Kind of interesting. Kind of weird. Uh, you know, I wonder, is he into that kind of, it's like, what kind of handcuffs were they? Was he, is he into that kind of, you know? What's his girlfriend? You know, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but, so, they find this this closet door that's secured shut with handcuffs. And then, so, it doesn't say how they got into the closet. I mean, did they get consent? Did, did he let them search the closet? Or did they get a search warrant? Or did they just do it? Um, I, I never was able to find for sure how they were able to get into the closet, but they did. They, I mean, I know how they got into the closet. Anybody can figure that out. But <clears throat> how did how did they do it legally? What was their legal route, right? And it, again, it, there's nothing I could find that really said how. I'm assuming they, you know, they got consent or maybe a search warrant. But inside of that closet, <clears throat> that's what's interesting. So. Inside that closet, they find boxes of both 38 and 357 ammunition. For those who are um, unfamiliar with the finer points of handgun, um, 38 and 357 are sort of interchangeable. I know. Don't blow up the. Don't don't at me for that. You can put. 38 into a 357 and it'll fire um, and it'll still it'll still work um, I don't think you can put 357 into a 38 I'm pretty sure you can't I wouldn't do it but the Colt trooper is capable of firing both just we'll leave it at that and again the the Ballistics and forensics told these guys that that's the weapon, a Colt Trooper. Keep that in the back of your head. Um, so they find these boxes of 38 and 357. They find a police scanner. They find speed loaders, some batons, replica badges from a bunch of different agencies. Uh, even Even had some dummy grenades. Uh, the guy had no alibi, so there's that puts him pretty high up there on the suspect list. But now let's get back to good old James King. He hit number one with a bullet. Again, the guy is twenty five thousand dollars in debt. Um, former bank employee. Uh, still, I mean. $25,000 in, in credit card debt after having filed bankruptcy already. Um, so the guy obviously had some spending issues or something. So they search his house, and they find um, they find a lot of stuff, but it's kind of what they don't find that is sort of suspect. So they search his house. Now remember, he's a retired cop. Um, I know lots of retired cops. And retired cops like to keep a lot of the stuff that they had. Little mementos. A lot of them like to keep, if you know, if they were if they purchased their sidearm, which Denver police officers, they, they're given an allowance and they're allowed to purchase their, they, they purchase their own firearms. Um, so that, you know, you keep your firearm from when you were a cop, maybe have it, maybe have it, you maybe don't shoot it anymore. Maybe you put it in like a, put, have it mounted on a shadow box or something, but you keep all that kind of stuff. Lots of really, you know, you keep all the, all the weird little keepsakes. You keep the, you keep your leather gear, you keep all that stuff, you know, you relive the glory days, if you will. You kind of throw the throw the leather gear in a closet somewhere, and, and, you know, every once in a while you take it out and look at it, whatever, or you, you don't even take it out and look at it, you just throw it in the back of the closet somewhere, and you clean it, you know, 
and you're cleaning out your closet, you kind of reminisce a little bit about what you used to do. That's the way it is when you're a retired cop. At least for most of the retired cops I know anyway. And I know a few really, really well. Um, but, so, again, it's what they don't find. But we'll get back to that. So you have, in his house, they did find that, of course, he's a former bank employee, but they find a folder labeled plans inside of it is a map of the bank this dude bought a he, he got a bigger safety deposit box he had a safety deposit box most people have them not unusual but he got a he got a, he got a bigger safety box that's 1000 cubic inches that's almost the exact dimensions that would hold Re weird fact that you definitely did not need to know Weird off-the-wall trivia that you definitely did not need to know is that $200,000 in cash will fit into 1,009 cubic inches. So this guy got, King got a safety, upgraded his safety deposit box to one of the larger safety deposit boxes that is 1,000 cubic inches. Again, almost the exact dimensions to hold $200,000 in cash. Boy, he's really climbing up there. He's already, I mean, he's just just nail after nail in the coffin, right? It's interesting, to, and then interesting little fact. Robert Bardwell reported his bank access card missing. And guess who quit his job the day before the bank access card was reported missing. Not the day before it went missing, but the day before it was reported missing. Also, no bueno, right? So his alibi for that day, eh, I don't know, kind of shaky, a little sketchy, to say the least. So he went to a place that's called, I don't even know if it's still there. I don't know if it still exists to this day or not. But at the time, there was a place known as the Capitol Hill Community Center. Oh, wait, that is still around, I think. I don't think it, it may not be called that anymore, but the Capitol Hill Community Center is still around. Um, but that's where he claimed he was. He claimed he was there. Nobody can confirm his alibi. Nobody can confirm that he was there. He was actually supposedly there to meet with the Denver Chess Club, is what he said. However, it's worth noting that the Denver Chess Club had not met in a number of years before that uh, that robbery. Well, do your homework before you're going to come up with an alibi, buddy. Um, but still, I mean, no. So he can't he can't find anybody uh, that can confirm that he was at the Capitol Hill Community Center. Um. And this dude had a – this dude was known for his wicked, like, porn stash. Of course, back in the 80s, that wasn't a porn stash, but now we would call it a porn – that's what we would call it now is a porn stash. But this dude was known. I mean, that was like his thing. Everybody knew – everybody that knew James King as a cop, everybody – that dude was known for his mustache. Right? So, would you find it just a wee bit suspicious that he shaves that thing off right around the time of the, of the robbery? Just, just a wee bit suspicious, maybe. A little bit? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, and then, so here's where I was talking about before. Where I mentioned, you know, what's what's not there is almost as important as what is there, right? And like that, like that. There's a cliche, of course. The absence of evidence is evidence. So he doesn't have. He no longer has any of his Denver Denver PD gear. 
None of it. Not even his gun. What? Who just... What? So, and and when they pushed him on that, when they were interviewing him or whatever, and they're talking to him, they pushed him on it and they said, what happened to your gun, dude? I threw it away because the cylinder cracked. What? 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 Yeah. I mean, again, anybody with, you know, minimal gun knowledge or whatever, you don't throw a gun away because the cylinder cracked. Yes, you can't fire it with a cracked cylinder. You blow your hand off. I get that. But at the same time, it's very it's a very very simple, very basic repair to to replace a cracked cylinder. I mean, so so ba- so such a basic repair that anybody with some confidence and a little bit of knowledge it's a pretty easy repair to make, especially now. I mean, back then you didn't have YouTube or whatever, but you take it to a gunsmith back then. Take it to a gunsmith, it'd be a pretty cheap repair. It'd be a lot cheaper than buying a new gun. Uh, or, you know, so. Um, but he just threw it away? I, I don't believe that. Um, and then here's the final nail in the coffin, right? Five of the six witnesses picked him out of a lineup. Well, sort of. Because um, he... Nobody picked him out of a lineup the first time. This is important. They didn't pick him out of the lineup the first time. They... Then somebody drew a hat and sunglasses on the people in the lineup, and then they picked King. Kind of a weird, I I don't even know. <laughs> that sounds like something out of the Pink Panther movie or something. I don't know. That just seems a, a little bit sketch to me, I guess. I don't know. So, ultimately, I wish I had the the cool hammer noise from, from that one TV show on that one network. I know I know you all know who I'm talking about. I know you all know. If you're if you are a true crime fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That hammer thing, that gong thing. All right. Well, I, I would hit that if I could. Um, anyway, so on July fourth, nineteen ninety one, James King was arrested. Now there are reports out there that say I've I've read two different dates. Um, from what I can tell, the official date was July 4th that I read in an AP article that he was arrested on July 3rd, but maybe it was the middle of the night on July 3rd, and there's like 2 o'clock in the morning on July 4th, so technically they're both right, I guess. Um, he was arrested and charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, two each for the victims, two for each of the victims, excuse me, one deliberate, you know, premeditated, I'm going to kill you, I planned it out, murder. And then one count for each of them for felony murder. Um, again, this is a true crime podcast, and if you're listening to a true true crime podcast, I probably am beating a dead horse. You probably already know this, but I'll say it for those in the back that aren't paying attention. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. Um Felony murder is when someone dies as the result of a fel- in the middle of someone dies during the commission of a felony. That's the same. It carries the same penalties as for it's still first degree murder. Two different types of first degree murder, <clears throat> but first degree murder nonetheless. And of course, one count of armed robbery. The trial began. On May 19th, 1992. So, this is all worth noting. King sat in prison from from the day he was arrested. He's still, as of right now, or as of that moment, uh, the moment of his trial, he'd been in prison that entire, or been in jail, sorry, in the county jail that entire time. So, um, the trial began 
May 19th, 1992. Now, he had two of the most um, <clears throat> well-known in that area, two of the most well-known defense attorneys, two of arguably the best de- defense attorneys of their time in that area, Walter Garash and Scott Robinson. These guys were utter, I mean, absolute just monsters in the courtroom. Um, they managed to, they really managed to get, you know, they, 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 they did an amazing job. Um, there were some other details that the jury never saw that I didn't mention here. Things like King had some, some fake IDs, uh, some other things that the jury never knew about. And the reason the jury never knew about it was because they couldn't really be logically tied to the crime. But nonetheless, they they excluded that. The jury never knew that that in all of that stuff that they found, whatever, that he had some, some new identities and things like that. But they, Walter Garash and Scott Robinson, they did their job. And they did it really well because on July, on June 9th, 1992, the jury went to deliberations. Now, also, you can look online and it's still out there, but this particular trial really kind of set the um, kind of gave really kind of started to give birth to um, what became Court TV. This was a televised trial, and it was on this network, Court TV, actually. Um, and it really it really pushed Court TV out into the public eye and really got it a lot of, you know, it gave it its big push. And then, uh, of course, OJ kind of pushed it over the top. But, so, jury goes to the deliberations on June 9th, 1992. They come back on June 17th, 1992, 366 days after the, um, after the robbery. James King was found not guilty. And for all intents and purposes, the case just sort of died right there. That was it. Um, nothing's ever, it's just now been... Now it is now officially filed off into the cold case bureau. Not even the cold case bureau. It's just stuck in a corner somewhere in a filing cabinet for lost souls and lost causes. Um, <clears throat> you know, not guilty. They 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 actually managed during the trial. They managed to get. Um, to get the uh, <clears throat> to get witnesses to uh, fail to identify uh, Harrison Ford in a lineup. Again, all these things were on court TV. It was pretty impressive. Um, Harrison Ford. They couldn't identify Harrison. This is the time of like Indiana Jones and all that stuff. So I mean, he was pretty well known, but they couldn't identify him in the lineup. Um, so they worked their magic, and he walked away a free man. Did he do it? I think he did. I don't know. I Well, I, somewhere in my gut, I believe he did it. But, again, you know, justice, our justice system did its job. You know, um, those lawyers did their job, and they, they put that, they planted just that one itty-bitty little seed of doubt into the jury, and then they watered it and watched it grow, and to what it became, you know, they watched it grow, you know, that little itty-bitty nagging little doubt that's not really, that's really totally unreasonable and out of the way, but then, you know, the the defense, they kind of watered it. They watered that little seed of doubt. They grew it, and they grew it, and they grew it, and he walked away. Um, I, I think that, again, I think he did it, but, you know, and then, um, 
of course, we'll never really know. And then, of course, there's Paul Yoakum, too. About four months after um, after the trial, Yoakum died of a heart attack. Not that that's really worth anything. Unless, I mean, again, unless maybe they they couldn't get back to looking at him for the case. Maybe they could. I don't know. Of course, they can't interview him. Um, technology and things have not gotten that far advanced yet. Um, so... Um, and, and they watched, the FBI kept King under surveillance until the day he died in 2013. Um, they kept him under surveillance. He died of dementia, alone, and destitute. Um, he never, you know, the money never turned up. None of that. So, you know. I'll leave you with that. Uh, that's our final thought. Did he do it? I don't know. I, I leave it in your hands. You're the new jury, based on based on the story you just heard. We'll make you the new jury. Judge, jury, and executioner, if you like. Um, so that's all I have this week for the very first episode of Coffee and a True Crime Dumpster Fire. Three things that we absolutely love. Coffee, true crime, and dumpster fires. All combined in one show. Of course, me, your host, the mysterious Mr. C, I am the dumpster fire. Yes, I am. Um, so going forward, the coffee part will be I'll 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 find some different coffees to sort of test out and and give you my opinions on, and then I'll figure out a way to get you a link to them. Maybe we'll, I don't know, maybe we'll set up a website or something. I don't know. But in the meantime, it's been real. It's been fun. It might have even been real fun. I'm signing off and we'll see you next week.